like a, a little bit of like a puff of smoke comes out of whatever instrument, which so, it sounds bad. That sounds really bad, but these aircraft are old. That happens, and they they immediately land and they come back and they they tell us like, oh, there was an electrical fire in the cockpit. There's I had to put out a fire. Welcome to How I Embraced the Suck, a podcast where you get to hear from veterans what life in the military is really like. I am your host, Walt. And before we start, you should know that I do not censor the show in any way. You have been warned. We were resupplied from Bahrain. We ported there once when that was possible. The uh, the sticking point with the entire with that entire Mew is uh, the the COVID thing started as we were in the Gulf and we didn't know. Oh right. About it, we didn't get like enough news to know what was actually going on. We just knew that the supply ships weren't making it out anymore. Uh, that we couldn't port, and that we were stuck flying ops in the Gulf until further notice. Definitely the defining feature. Right, right. Interesting. So, so were you planning to come back earlier than you did? Or you were scheduled to come back earlier than you did? or We were scheduled to leave the Gulf earlier. They extended okay. us two or three times. At one time, oh, we great. were about to cross the Suez again, go back to Fourth Fleet, and they kicked us out. We had to do a U-turn <laughs> and go back. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> That's depressing. Well, today we've got uh, Dexter, who used to maintain helicopters and now doesn't. And very recently, no less. How's it going, Dexter? Oh, it's going. It's going well. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. I'm I'm ecstatic. Oh yeah. No, I'm I'm anxious. I'm excited. I've done this before. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what's your What's your background for the listener? Uh, my background. So. Uh, I enlisted when I was 18, uh, came from a, a mid-sized town in the Rockies, um, mainly because I didn't want to keep going to school. I had done uh, like the 12 years of school. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't have the money to go to college. Uh, I have eight siblings, and there's no way mm. my family could pay for all of us to go to school. Right, right. <laughs> so figured, okay, I'll... I mean, I don't list. My uh, my father was a Marine, and his father was a Marine, and his father was a Marine. So that was kind of the natural choice. That uh, if I hadn't picked that particular branch, I'd probably still be getting eat for it now. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Was there pressure? Yeah, there was. A little, there was a little pressure, but it's fine. Right. Um. And I enlisted with a kind of a plan in mind, in that, in the same way that uh, my family, all the men are Marines. Uh, we're also all electricians, but mm. I, that, yeah, we're all, all of us are electricians, all of us. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I wanted to do electrical work, but I also wanted to be in aviation because, you know, electrician, because that's what we do and aviation, that's what I wanted to do. Right. So, uh, avionics maintenance was kind of a natural fit for that. Um, which with avionics for the uninitiated is, uh, electrical maintenance on aircraft. Um, sure. So, and I got it. I, it, it actually requires fairly high test scores, which somehow I pulled off high enough test scores uh, <laughs> to get Navionics maintenance. So I got a, a five-year contract, 
versus the normal four because avionics takes an extra year of uh, right. school. They have to teach, you know, 18 year olds who didn't want to go to college how to how to do electrical maintenance. So that's which in hindsight, I'm in, I'm in tech school now, which is uh-huh. what I'm doing is electrical engineering tech electrician, industrial electrician. But uh, I'm amazed that they could do it. I'm amazed they taught us anything. Right. Yeah. Well, because a lot of those are critical flight systems, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or all like, of them, probably. Like fall out of the sky kind of stuff. Right. Right. You know, you're like 19 year old kid out there to fix it, and it's not they don't throw you out there, and you're the you have your sole responsibility over it. But sure, sure. The, the gravity of it, especially more so in hindsight, it's called kind of natural when you're doing it. In hindsight, uh, I that's insane. The model is insane, and it works. The aircraft fly. Right. But, right. Yeah, it's, it makes sense why school always felt so rushed. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you'll learn it. Oh yeah. Huh. Uh, so when yeah. when you when you uh, went to the recruiting officer, how sure were you to get the, the avionics maintenance that you wanted? At what uh, point were you positive? Or I let's see, I knew I wanted it. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else, and mm-hmm. I actually. They actually told me I'd get it. They told me, which, you know, coming from a recruiter, that's sure, yeah. you know, varying degrees <laughs> of certainty there. Uh, uh, my recruiter wasn't, he wasn't bad, you know. They, mm-hmm. they do their thing at MAPS, but, they, you know, it's not like he was doing anything super sketchy. So uh, they told me I'd get it. A couple of times I got called and said, hey, you can go to boot camp tomorrow if you want to be a radio operator. And I declined. Right. You want to be a radio operator. I wanted my job. Uh, so I had to wait. Uh, I think I turned 18 in June. I had to wait until October to leave. So I had to wait a couple months, but that's not bad at all. Sure, sure. So I, I actually got lucky. And I've, I've heard horror stories of guys having like open contract. Uh, and they end up, you know, burning porta shooters out in the desert. Right. Kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, again, in hindsight, again, uh, I got pretty lucky with that. because the job I wanted, which doesn't. Happen. You ask guys uh, what contract they picked, and they none of them picked what they're doing. None of them. Maybe guys who picked like admin or supply or something. Maybe they get what they want. But, right. Um. Yeah. No. I picked. I picked the job, and I actually got it. That's pretty cool. That that I, yeah. That's what I've heard. Is that it, that's unusual. It is. Too. Yeah. That's a. Uh, it's a mess. There's. They're just funneling bodies. The job they they offer you in the recruiting office is just to get you. To get you. To right. Right, make you happy and get you to sign. Yeah. <laughs> so what you said that year of school was rushed. What what all did you go? I mean, well, I guess is that was it similar to what you're doing now? Uh, your, some your of it was. School? Some of it wasn't. Uh, currently, the tech school I'm in is a little more. Uh, well, it's less. It's not aviation, so there's a lot of systems that I won't be working on. Sure. It's also more uh, like industrial. Okay. And, more focused like microelectronics, um, but the school was rushed. So it's avionics school is broken into three parts. Uh, you go to a naval air station in Pensacola, and mm-hmm. you'll have two curriculums you go through there. Um, ATT, which is just very basic electronics, like you'll build like your very first light bulb circuit. You learn how to test it, how to meet, how to use the tools, test equipment, multimeters, um, and then if you can do that, which if you can't do that, you're not going to make it. Right. If you can do that, 
you can graduate and um, this is where you start breaking off in different types of avionics. Uh, so there's O-level maintenance okay. and I-level maintenance. O-level means you're on the flight deck if your helicopter's your crew and the bird. Um, I-level means, and this sucks, I feel sorry for these guys, you're in a white van fixing the parts that O-level pulls off the aircraft. Oh, yeah, right. right. That's <laughs> not what I wanted to do. Uh, and it turns out you don't actually get to pick. Like it, they, it's determined in Pensacola. You've been in the you've been in the in the core oh. for like uh, six ish months, and this is you don't get to pick. I got lucky, right? I got O level. I wanted O level. I didn't even think <laughs> I level was a thing. Uh, but when I learned it was a thing, I knew I didn't want to do it. Right, right. I was lucky. I I got O level. Um, so yeah, you graduate ATT, you go to O strand, I strand, or AE. O strand mm-hmm. is obviously O level. I strand is I level. Um, and AE guys can do both from there and I got AE hmm. but when I graduated AE it's when you leave NAS Pensacola uh-huh. is when you get to pick your uh, your platform you get orders they'll put orders in front of everyone and uh, basically an order of how you graduate like if the guy at the top of the class gets first pick and if you barely pass you oh, get last pick sure um, sure yeah they lay out your orders in front of you and the orders are going to be O level orders I level orders uh, you get to pick the aircraft you work on if you're I uh, O level. Uh, well, all we had was F 18s and 53s. And of that, oh. only two of those are 53s. And then there were a bunch of I level orders, but I didn't even look at those. Mm. Uh, so I was second in my class. Uh, the guy in front of me picked F 18s. And actually, the only other guy who picked 53s was last. Everyone wanted F 18s. I have no idea. Oh, why. really? Well, they're, well, they're hot, hot units. <laughs> I, I guess that was like the. Imp- Everyone in A school is what we call it uh, mm-hmm. when you're at that school. It's A school. Everyone in A school wanted to work on jets, and I have I, – I, to this day, I don't know why, because jets, you fix them, but you never get to crew them. You don't fly around. Helicopters. Oh, uh, sure. Especially 53s, you know, the big – for the uninitiated, a 53 is the, the big helicopter, the right. big old one. Uh, if you fix that, you're crewing it. Uh, if you go anywhere, you, you're throwing your bags on it and flying with it. Uh, okay. So crewing it, fixing helicopters has perks. If, if you want to fly, you get plenty of flight hours fixing helicopters. Right. Um, yeah, you, you well, way also better that, than just fixing it. You're, you're more part of the team. You're not just Absolutely. the, the I mean, deck guy that maintains it. But yes. like, are you on the same with the same helicopter the whole time? Uh, you're with the same squadron of helicopters. Okay. Um, you'll be responsible for however many of them. When you deploy, you have four. Okay. Um, so you're not necessarily you're flying on them. the same helicopter every time. Uh, you'll fly in any helicopter. And you'll know okay. what you know, which one you want to be on, which one you don't want to be on. <laughs> you know, either the one you fixed or the one you didn't, depending on right. if you're any good. Right. Um, yeah, everyone wanted F-18s. So I picked 53s. Interesting. Uh, didn't quite know what I was getting myself into. I just knew that, okay, that's the big helicopter. I'll get to fly around. Right. And it'll be fun to fix. Um, but you still, at this point, haven't even, you haven't even seen a 53. You've seen a jet. You've worked on a jet for a little bit. Mm, uh, but you haven't okay. even seen a helicopter. Um, and people tell you things about 
where you're going, like as you graduate high school, they're like, oh, I picked 53s. Oh, yeah, those things are old. And you don't really get the implications of that until you hit the fleet and realize that what they mean by that is they're ancient. They're ancient. These things are old, like the 80s. And they're always, always, always broken. Always broken. Right. In some way or another. It's unavoidable. But, uh, yeah, uh, A school, you graduate, you get your orders, and based on what you picked, you go to C school, mm-hmm. which is only one like cl- one class, one curriculum. Um, but your C school is based on what platform you picked. Gotcha. So I went to C school in, well, my, it was my stateside duty station, uh, New River, so I actually was there for the, uh, my, the rest of my enlistment, for, well, minus uh, deta- various attachments and eventually mm-hmm. deployment, but... Um, so C schools really teach you how to work on your actual platform. So they have, okay. you know, a hangar and they've got some 53s in there and they're, uh, ours were actually super outdated. They were the Deltas, the, uh, C stallions. So I, mm. I, I, I work on the CH 53 echo, the super stallion. Right. Um, okay. These are the Deltas, but they're, they're, they're close enough that you can train, you know, kids on the mm-hmm. Delta. Uh, but C schools, uh, how long was it? It's, four-ish months, I think. They get you learn the systems and everything. And personally, I don't think C-School is even necessary because they teach you all this stuff. You don't even know what it is. Mm. Like They'll go out in the aircraft and they'll show you, but you can't really understand it until you really go out and fix it. Like You learn more your first day in the fleet going out and right. fixing something right. than you do ever. Like it, I personally, I don't think C school is even necessary. They got to just send you to the fleet as soon as you get your orders. Right. Um, but it's not altogether a bad time. You get to actually start an engine for the first time, which I guess is cool. Yeah. Uh, is that maybe yeah, based on the type of learner people are? Like some are more hands-on, some are more perhaps visual. Um, some guys do really well. Well, I was second in my class again at C school. Um, okay. Which it, it wasn't the same guy who beat me in A school. Right. I would have been kind of bitter about that. But um, <laughs> Now, some guys, I guess it's important because we actually had a reservist in our uh, class at C school. Hmm. Uh, so I guess for him, it was a little more necessary than it was for us. Mm, like, sure. We went off, like, scattered to the winds, got our squadrons and left. Well, some of us stayed at uh, New River. Right, but I guess the, for the reservist, it probably would have been necessary. They, I don't think they could have sent him to wherever it is he went and did. Right, right, just one weekend a month or something. Yeah. No, I'm I'm not bitter. I'm, I swear. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you don't personally. I don't think we needed to do the C school. Maybe that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get your squadron. For me, it was just right across the street, uh, which I was right. very upset about because you get to pick. You get three preferences when uh, when you graduate sea school and finally get the fleet. You get to pick. Uh, okay, I want to go overseas, west coast, or east coast. Mm. And that was the order I picked. Okay, first I want to go overseas, which right fifty three just went Hawaii, which would have been better, honestly. Right. West coast, which uh, Miramar, or uh, east coast, so New River or Cherry Point. For me, just mm. New River. No fifty threes in Cherry Point anymore. Uh, and I picked, I want to go overseas, I want to go west coast, and I want to go east coast. Right. And I got east coast. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom of the list, and I got it. You're like, I'm second in my class. <laughs> What's up yeah, with Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, that didn't factor in at all. Uh, it turns out only one of us 
only one of us actually got West Coast. The rest of us just went across the street to these squadrons. Oh, the okay. Coast. There, there, the, there were five of us, the reservists, guy who got West Coast, and the three of us, each of us got one of the different squadrons. So one of us went to each of the three squadrons right. on the East Coast. Um, that reservist hadn't been there. Oh, would have gotten the West Coast. <laughs> I, I could have got West Coast. And yeah, at the time I was really upset about it because I, I didn't like it in Carolina, which I that didn't change. I still I still right. cannot sure that place. I don't think anyone likes that place. Uh, but it kind of grew on me because the, the squadron I was with actually had a very good reputation. And because we had a good reputation, we got the deployments, which, mm. yeah, I'm still conflicted, like. Did I really want to go on that deployment? Yeah, it, it sucked. Right. I don't know. It would have been kind of lame if I hadn't. Um. So yeah, we got the we got all the the disc emissions and we got all the the expeditionary units. Okay. When I got there, we had a we had the same the twenty six Marine Expeditionary Unit. They were already they were out, um, deployed. So the, we were kind of at half strength when I got there. And there were a bunch of guys that. We're going to come back months and months later who I had never, like, met or seen. Sure. Um, and then later I went on that deployment at the end of, near the end of my enlistment. So that was interesting. But, no, I, I'm not, I'm still not psyched that I had to be stationed on the East Coast for four years. But uh, if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have deployed, which. Mm. Oh, sure. I, I would have thought about that. I, I am happy that I deployed, especially with the guys that I did. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious if for a mu is are like is there always a specific squadron like a specific squadron does it only go with a specific mu or are mu's kind of there like is, it's created and then they just pull units? Uh, so from what I can tell, there's going to be West Coast mu's and East Coast mu's, and the East Coast mu is going to pull it. Well, there's certain things it needs, so it needs mm. part of a Harrier squadron. Because we're you're on an LHD like a little carrier, right, right. Um, so you need part of a Harrier squadron, part of a 53 squadron, and an entire 22 squadron. Okay. Uh, these are these are uh, V22s, like the the mm-hmm. futuristic looking tilt rotor, right, right, right. tilt rotor, fly yeah. and they bend and they break all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's them. <laughs> so they take an entire tilt rotor squadron. So what happens is uh, they pull from East Coast Air Wing squadrons which means that uh they part of a harrier squadron gets chopped to a 22 squadron and, and part of a 53 squadron gets chopped okay. to a uh 22 squadron so i didn't actually deploy with hmh 461 which is my my 53 squadron i deployed gotcha. with vmm 365 a 22 squadron right um, right it becomes for purposes of deployment vmm 365 reinforced because you have augments from other platforms coming in. Okay, gotcha, um, gotcha. So and that's interesting, because you don't ever actually work around other platforms. You do kind of like, you get a WTI, which is in just big exercise in Yuma that you do. You mm-hmm. work around other platforms kind of there, but you still, you're still segregated. Like, right. They still, 53s have their corner of the flight, uh, flight line and then all the other platforms. You don't yeah, with the specialization, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for, so for a Mew, it's kind of your first time really actually working with other platforms because you're in their work center, like you're oh, on a okay. ship and you're literally like sharing a 
spot on the ship with these other guys. And you, like, you know them because you came and had to check into their unit. Right. Right. Um, so that's, it's interesting. And the, uh, the similarities and the differences are actually quite telling like 22s and 53s. We shared uh, a lot of procedures. We shared a lot of maintenance actions. Harriers, not so much. Sure. Um, but it, it's definitely interesting to, to bring, bring platforms together like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and there's a lot of conflict too, because everyone thinks their platform's the best, which right. I mean, to be fair, mine was as far as helicopters go. Right. Um, right. But, uh, there's, there's different cultures in every platform, which is honestly fascinating to me. Right. Like something about working on this particular aircraft changes who you are. And that's mm. not just me being dramatic. Like, Oh, interesting. If you, if you if you fix a Harrier, you're probably a felon. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Anyone who's ever worked with a Harrier has a criminal record as long as you're armed. It, interesting. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a rule. It's a law of physics. It's so right. weird. Like um, before they started working on Harriers or since oh, they both, started? Both. Okay. Okay. They were criminal when they joined. Now they're working on Harriers and they're, you know, getting DUIs. It's huh. unreal. Interesting. Oh, so yeah, huh. I don't know. Um, and V twenty two, V twenty twos are just punks. Basically, yeah. They, okay. You know, from what I can tell, they're they're up, they're up they're super uptight. Like, mm. uh, uh, our impression of the twenty two guys was that they uh, now we have all these rules, but we don't follow them because our platform is so old that we know which rules to throw out and which rules to follow. Right. And right, it's extremely streamlined. Working on right. fifty three, like. There's what you're supposed to do, and there's what you do do, and what you do do half the time is hit it with a wrench, uh, <laughs> reseat the cannon plug, and let the hide fluid drain out of it. Right. Uh, just you know, caveman maintenance half the time. Right. And they're old; they can take a beating. Twenty uh, twos haven't quite worked out those gremlins yet, so they're really uptight with the procedures. Which right. honestly well, is some friction because their chain of command was really uptight, not quite right. understanding that our way of doing things was you know, our way of doing things. Mm, so. Right. Well, operationally, or as far as command structure, were you, your partial squadron was under their command, right? Oh yeah. 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 But okay. We were, like their, their CO became our CO. And first thing they told us was, uh, we don't want any fights between the different platforms. And the first thing that happened was <laughs> fights between the different platforms. <laughs> well, since, now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you get what you ask for. right to say that, but. I mean, it's inevitable. You know, everyone, no one's going to, no one wants to admit that their aircraft's not up to snuff in this particular regard. Right. The 22 faster than a 53, but we can carry more. But I'm not right. going to admit that it's faster than my aircraft. I'm just going to brag that we carry more. So right, right. It, it's natural. It's not mal- It's not malicious. You know, you're not, you don't hate the other guys. You like them. You've deployed with them and you're living six feet away from them at all times. So. Right. Um. It's it's all in good fun for the most part. So you you said you were on a LHD. LHD. That's yeah. not the same as the Tarawa class, is it? I don't believe it is. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's been I, a while since I've looked at those. I was ever I was on two LHDs in my career. I did a stint on the USS Iwo Jima. Uh, give, mm. uh, give an example. Maybe people recognize okay. these ships. Describe what an LHD is. I just called it a it's a small carrier. You have right, a, right. We're going to take one jet off at a time, have some helicopters in the boneyard, but 
I was on mm-hmm. the USS Iwo Jima in 2017 for hurricane relief and in Puerto Rico. And I deployed to the Gulf on the USS Bataan. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. You know, and different ships have kind of different cultures. Like, I mean, the Bataan hmm. wasn't great, but it was better than the Iwo Jima. If I deployed in the Iwo Jima, which uh, apparently was a possibility, I don't know what I would have done. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, they're naval ships and not to, mm-hmm. I'm not going to trash the Navy. They're, they're okay, I guess. But, uh, the culture on these ships is kind of determined by like the sailors on them. And so, right. The Iwo Jima has, well, they have a lot of rules for if you're on the flight deck and off the flight deck and really anywhere. And if you don't follow the rules, the sailors are actually the kind of people to tell you about it. Right. Regardless of how stupid the rule is. So right. like, you lit off an engine, you had to have a guy standing out there with a fire extinguisher. Like, no matter what, doesn't matter what engine, doesn't matter how low you're running it. Right. Someone is out there with a fire extinguisher, and it can't, t- it can't touch the deck. Right. He has to be right. holding it. This is like a big fire extinguisher. So I think I was a lance corporal at the time. So sometimes that guy was me, hold the fire extinguisher. So yeah, right. that was a stupid rule, because I had to hold a fire extinguisher. It's heavy. I didn't like that. I didn't like that so much. It's hot, and it's heavy. Yeah, and like... You can't like, you can't just have your hand on the lever. You have to have to be holding it up because if it touches the deck, the the yellow jacket runs over and says, "Hey, right, the fire extinguisher off the deck." It's not going to work if it's Come touching on. the deck. <laughs> no. We have fire extinguisher systems and fire extinguishers on the aircraft. This is just the, I don't know, I'm convinced it was just the, the a power play by these flight deck guys. Right, right. But the baton didn't have that, um, which is good because I can't imagine us having enough guys to even do that. Once the ops actually picked up, and mm. not to mention I'm night crew and I, it's pitch black and I'm standing out there with a fire extinguisher for what? <laughs> well, you'll definitely know faster if the engine starts on fire. Oh yeah, yeah <laughs> you'll yeah. see it that much quicker. It, it happened, and honestly, everyone sees. And then they, the right. guys up in the bridge are calling down like, "Why are you on fire?" Like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't schedule it. <laughs> we got it. We put it out. Unscheduled right. fire. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, unauthorized oh. use of flame. Yeah. So you said you deployed, or you, uh, yeah, you deployed on the Iwo Jima for, for uh, uh, the Baton deployment. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a deployment. That was a couple okay. months. We call it uh, DISCA. No okay. one knows what that stands for, but right. Uh, yeah, twenty seventeen, my first ever time going on a ship was on the Iwo Jima. Uh, they took a bunch of us from our squadron. Uh, a couple of our aircraft, like three or four of them, um, put them on the Iwo Jima, and we went down for, to uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, I can't remember, Hurricane, like, Sandy or Ike or something, it hit, mm. uh, like, the Florida Keys and Puerto Rico, and we went out to uh, help them out. We ended up just, like, flying bags of rice, you know, all day. Um, right. Did you one produce point, water, too, fresh water for them? Did you have that on board, the Iwo Jima, uh, a water this production? Is a, this is a, desalinator but that's mainly for the ship i think okay. we had we so we had water but it, the ship wasn't producing it we just had it on board okay um you were just we providing were transport it. basically yeah which is okay. know, 53s that's most of right. what we're doing anyway. Right. either people or people or supplies in this case it was supplies um and that it sounded cool uh and at one point they wanted volunteers to go help uh hand the food out which Mm. sounds like it would be kind of neat because right. I think what's going to happen is you're out there 
you know, giving out food in Puerto Rico and people are all grateful. Um, right. What actually happened, and I know because I knew this would happen. I knew this would happen. I was a Lance Corporal. I know you don't do this. Uh, was a friend of mine and had volunteered for it, thinking that's what it was. It turns out all he was doing was carrying around the heavy bags of rice, you know, at the landing site. Mm. That's all he was doing, just moving right. around the heavy bags of rice. Yep. So, uh, gotcha, I guess. <laughs> So basically, he'd land, and he would he would unload it, and then after he, after the helicopter left, people would come in and get it, get the food. Precisely. Yes. Right. Okay. I'd be a bummer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he thought he was going to be like doing the humanitarian thing, and uh, which nope, I guess just a mule. As far as, yeah, literally. Yeah, <laughs> they just needed bodies to move rice. Oops. Huh. I don't know. We didn't catch on to that earlier. Hmm. So, what was the as far as the the two different um, slash deployments, I guess, or, or whatever. What was kind of the difference in the, the temp, not just the operational tempo, but the just the um, kind of feel on the ship, the, the attitude on the ship? Uh, this game was definitely more laid back because you're, you know, you're not in a combat theater. You're just mm-hmm. flying rice out to Puerto Rico. So if the aircraft doesn't have working countermeasures, that's fine. Um you know, your air crew sure. doesn't have to be in full rig. You know, you don't have to put the put the guns on the thing. The 53 has uh, three 50 caliber machine guns on it. Uh, way mm. more pleasant to fly without those. Oh, because um, you can shut the doors? Okay, is, it, is, it, is it fun to fly with? Yeah, yeah. You got a, a window, you got one out the hatch, and you got one out the on the ramp. Okay, um, sure. But yeah, you don't have to have those when you're just flying, flying rice. So uh, Optipo was a lot more laid back. Like, the flight schedule was busy, but... Um, you were a partially mission capable aircraft. Like you don't have countermeasures, sure. or something like that. Uh, you can't like your your guns won't fit on the mount because the mount's busted. Uh, that can do the job. That's fine, right? Um, like a, a comm system, one, one of your two comm systems down. That's that's fine because you can fly back and forth. You're just a bus. Um, in the Gulf, that wasn't the case. Your countermeasures had to be up if they. Right. Weren't up. If one countermeasure system wasn't up, the aircraft could not leave the deck. Right. Uh, you had to have your guns. You had to have all your comms. You had to have SATCOM, which is a basic right. fix. Right. Um, so the the requirements for an aircraft being able, being flight ready were much much higher, and the flight schedule like uh, it was busy at Disco Puerto Rico. The flight schedule was busy, but it wasn't frantic. Whereas mm. in Gulf, it was frantic. Right. I mean, you had to get this, you know, however many guys in the battalion landing team grunts uh, off into Kuwait at this time. And so the aircraft had to leave at this time or earlier. So um, definitely much more frantic. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah. And they, the conditions obviously were a lot worse, mainly because you're in fifth fleet. So uh, resupply wasn't quite as frequent or easy. And mm. Once the when the COVID thing had started, and again we didn't really know that that's what it was. We just knew that uh, there's there's a virus. People are like getting sick, uh, and ships can't leave port at least not easily. Right. So resupply kind of like slowed down and stopped at one point. Mm. Uh, ports closed. So at one point the Bataan only had one working boiler. Yeah, the ship was just limping. Oh, we, okay. Sure. We 
yeah, normally on a on a Mew you get mid voyage repairs. Apparently, uh, right. We didn't because we limped out of the Gulf, and we said, okay, we're gonna port in Jordan. We got to Jordan and the port closed. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll we'll cross the Suez and we'll go to what was it next? Uh, Israel. Well, before mm-hmm. we even cross the Suez, Israel says port's closed. All right, so we'll go to Athens, Greece. Port closed. Uh, oh wow! Uh, Suda Bay, Spain. Port closed. Like every port we tried to hit, right? Or at least contacted because we didn't want to cross the Suez and have the ports closed. Uh, the ports all closed. Mm-hmm. So when every port in the bed closed, uh, they just had us go back to the Gulf with one boiler. So yeah, we were at the Suez. We we're we we're gonna get a break from that, and then right we went back. So. Yeah, I think we made the, I think we made the trip from the Gulf and around the, the Arabian Peninsula up the Red Sea like three times, getting turned around. The joke was uh, great. Twenty sixth Mew turn or just Mew turn, right? Because man, every time every time we went to a port, it freaking closed on us. <laughs> oh yeah, wild. <clears throat> yeah. Did did you find, um, on deployment? What, what's kind of some of the differences between deployment and just being at base? Oh, there's oh, oh, op tempo is higher, obviously, uh, but op tempo is probably the primary difference. Like you're okay, so busy. Uh, I so I work nights. Well, most of my enlistment I work nights, but deployment I work nights the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a twelve-hour shift. Like no matter what, it, twelve hours on the flight deck. Right. Um, whereas uh, in garrison. You have like twelve hours shifts happen, but it's more like a nine ten. Sure, is the, is the thing. Um, uh, the food's worse. Was also the difference. I can only that comes to mind because it's like the one thing you look forward to. Um, right. The environment is definitely more rushed. There's more. There's more operational pressure on everyone. Like, doesn't matter mm. what you're there to do. Like what you're. What you're doing now is real because, you know, in garrison, you're flying ops. Right. Does it really matter right. if this aircraft doesn't make out of chocks? What's the worst that happens? You know, some grunts get a day off. Okay, well, that's right. fine. Um, but in the Gulf, like, it has to make it out. A lot of times it's actually extremely dire that it makes it out. So if you have need one aircraft to go out, you'll have two spinning because it, inevitably one's going to break. Uh, right. And then the other one can go. So... The readiness requirement is much much higher. Hmm. You know, there's a lot more pressure from top down to. Uh, well, we, I would describe it as cracking the whip. They would they will crack the whip when you're deployed. It, the schedule is just absolutely brutal. And I mean, I get it. Uh, right. Does it suck working twelve hour shifts for. Well, and twelve is like the minimum. You'll be there for sixteen hours if they need you. But right. Um. Yeah, eight months straight. You know. 12-hour shifts, does it suck being told constantly that you have to do your job harder? Yeah. Right. Okay. Kind of eventually, it just it bounces off, and you're just like, okay, yeah, I know. You just beat down. But, right. Um, yeah, and it's not really the downtime, because uh, we were meant to port a couple times in the Gulf, and at one point we did, early deployment, uh, we ported in Bahrain mm-hmm. uh, at Jordan, and then Bahrain. Uh, but that was it because then the the COVID thing right. started. All the ports closed. Right. So we couldn't port. And um, 
the question was, well, okay, are ops going to slow down? Um, <laughs> and I can't remember if it was like right before or right after, but those airstrikes took out uh, Soleimani around that time. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. the answer, the answer that kind of answered the question for us, like, no, Optipo is not going to slow down. Right. Uh, we're just going to fly ops off the ship. So we're going to, all right, we need to fly ops into Kuwait. Uh, all right, we're going to sail within flight distance to Kuwait. We're going to fly ops off the ship into Kuwait, which is mm-hmm. miserable because if you, the carrier is really just to get you there and you fly ops, you know, on land, but we right. couldn't, couldn't go on land. So we had a proper deployment flight schedule on this flight deck. Right. Absolutely. Right. Brutal. The most crowded flight deck ever. They'd have like, like lines like two fifty threes spinning up, and then like three or four twenty twos out in front of it. The flight deck's just full, and then once they all take off, they start rolling the jets out so the jets can take off. Right, just miserable. And if you if say a twenty two uh, goes down in chocks, which is say some a critical system breaks, it can't it can't take off for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Immediately, there's guys out there to tow it and either replace it or right. other aircraft take off so the jets can take off, and then you tow another one out there and replace it. Like right, it's just an absolute mess. Like you're getting. All these aircraft off the deck, and then when they come back, that's always a mess too. They come back early, broken. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, huh. So night night launches were especially miserable because on the ship you cannot use uh, white light. Right. Uh, now the rules for this change. Some some days they'll let you use red light. Some days they'll let you use green light, but not red light. You can always use blue light. I have no idea. They say huh. it's for NVGs. Mm-hmm. I I can't confirm whether or not NVGs are huh. blue light doesn't blind NVGs. I, I don't know, but they said blue light is fine. Some days it, green was okay. They always change the rules. Oh, um, so like the helicopter pilots would come in using NVGs, but and the yeah, potential yeah, concern so, was that you would blind them with, say, a red light or something. Yeah, your pilots okay. and then uh, very often your <clears> air crew have NVGs on. Okay. Um, and yeah, you don't want them to be blinded. And I think it was also maybe like a white light and a flight deck can be seen from a distance. They never told us. They just, like, they just make these rules for right, us. Right, right. Um, blue light was always okay. So my light was a headlamp with a blue lens duct taped over the white light. Right, right. Risky. It worked extremely well. I actually still have it. It's got a still there but, uh but it was that would seem kind of silly to us that they required that but the rules would change like right mm-hmm. they required red light one time it was uh only ordnance can use red lights so ordnance are the guys that uh load the bombs in the jet only they right. can use red light there i i see no rhyme or reason to that but right that was one of the more arbitrary rules and uh it was one of those, those rules that you couldn't really afford to break because uh, we had a flight line mechanic use a white light inside the cabin of a 53 for like five seconds tops. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next day, his ass was in front of the skipper, like the ship, like yep. the 06. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's getting, uh, I don't think he got like in trouble, trouble, but I, I mean. It was an I mean, enjoyable day. <laughs> yeah, you talk to the skipper, you, you, yeah. you're, in, you're in trouble whether you get paperwork or not. Oh. Yeah, that was one of the one of the big things was you can't see anything. So yeah, night launches. 
your light's not good because it's blue or maybe green or red. So, mm. um, if Did that ever cause problems with, cause I'm, I'm assuming my, I'm picturing if you're out there on your, are you looking at wires and stuff? You're trying to open up an engine. Um, you're trying to get on the aircraft. Um, if you're in the cockpit, you're pulling out instruments. Uh, yeah, the light thing made it, in some cases, really hard because you're a lot of times you're doing like work on really really small instruments. Right. So yeah, that definitely right. was a quality of life thing. At least day crew had like the sun. Yes. <laughs> uh, but night launches, um, you could not use your light. Period. Because. The guys, so, and if you were crewing, you had NVGs. Right. So if you were crewing, you were good, okay. but you weren't fixed. You weren't fixing it then. So it wasn't even your problem. Right. Uh, if you were the maintainer launching the aircraft, you couldn't use any light like whatsoever. So hmm. it's pitch black. Everyone who can see has NVGs. So it's not like they're, you can use their flashlight. Um, so all you can really see is like the, uh, the lights from the cockpit on the instruments and mm, then right the aircraft have uh nvg lights in the cabin so they're like the like the blue green kind of nvg color and okay. those light up but they're super super dim so you can right. see like that and you can see like instrument lights in the cockpit otherwise uh you're blind and you're up there with uh like four other guys on shift trying to get the aircraft launched uh communications impossible because you don't uh, you have to be plugged in to the aircraft to talk. Uh, oh, on the headsets? The guys on it? Right. Yeah, well, yeah, on our headsets. Um, air crew and maintainers, uh, you can't speak over the proper comms. Only the pilots can speak over the proper comms. Now, is it possible for air crew to sit up front, plug into the comms and talk? Yeah, but if that wasn't something you could just walk up and do right. you know, on, on a launch. Right. Um, so... It would have been nice if we'd been had communication with like pilots and air crew were right. you know meters away from the aircraft, but you don't. You have basically nothing. You, so what it was kind of reduced to is the crew chief out in front of the aircraft, if he needed something, was kind of just doing this business. Right. And you had to now there's multiple different uh, maintenance shops, you know, maybe he needs an airframes mechanic. Maybe he needs a flight line mechanic. Maybe he needs avionics technicians. You don't know. So everyone runs out there. Right. And you have to like over the sound of the rotor, <clears throat> you have to lift your, he, uh, your cranial, <laughs> lift your ear cup, which hurts. I mean, right. Oh man, that's so loud. And he's got to like yell right in your ear, whether he needs airframes, flight line or avionics. And everyone else has to run back out. And Avi's there, and then it's pitch black, and you have to fix whatever is broken. Like right. we, and that could be anything. Like sometimes pilots have legitimate gripes. Sometimes pilots make things up. We had a dude in the Gulf. Uh, it's like a major too. Like probably our most our senior <laughs> pilot on deployment refused to leave the flight deck unless the backlight on one of his exterior light control panels worked. The backlight. Like, just the control panel lighting up. Right. Like, you have some leeway. You you know, you can tell you can tell a pilot in politely to, like, suck it up. This dude right. would not suck it up. Would not suck it up. It was so weird. It's like, he just didn't want to fly. And honestly, if that was it, I don't blame him. But Sure. Um, we <laughs> actually ended up fixing it, but it took, like, 20 minutes 
and it was like this huge rush. Afterwards, everyone was like, "Well, well, what took? So, why? Why did the bird take so long to get at Jocks?" You know, the squadron CEO is looking at us as avionics right. guys, like thinking it was our fault, and we. He understood when we told him, well, right. uh, the major didn't want to leave the flight deck unless this backlight worked. So I don't know if he got chastised for that, but that, it didn't happen again. They, I think the pilots are probably told on mass right. there to uh, suck it up with right. the backlights. Yeah, no, that, was, that was early golf. That didn't happen again. They, they eventually started sucking it up with, you know, comms. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll never have all your comms up. <clears throat> <laughs> so what uh you mentioned this guy was a major did you see a lot of warrant officers flying or was what was kind of the pilot uh, makeup so warrant officers can't be pilots they can be air crew anyone can be air crew honestly. oh okay okay uh so my oic as avionics he was a warrant officer oh okay. i i never i never had a lieutenant in charge of me he was always a warrant officer um hmm. because we we'd handle some encrypted things and uh Things that require like a, a uh, one, a oh okay, what's the what's the classification? A clearance, a clearance. Right, I needed clearance to work on some of the stuff, and it required like quite a bit of technical expertise, more okay. than like your average co-pilot is going to have. So they put warrant officers, and these guys were all um, formerly avionics guys, in charge gotcha. of avionics jobs. So, gotcha. Okay, uh, that was different. Uh, pilots are. Well, they're a different breed entirely, but uh, like junior pilots are going to be uh, first lieutenants. Those are like co-pilots. And then your average pilot, you know, up to your more more senior pilots are usually captains. And then your mm. senior pilots, the guys who are uh, have all the qualifications the pilots can get, they're they're majors. And okay. uh, like your CO, he's a lieutenant colonel. He's a pilot. Your XO, a major, he's a pilot. All the officers in your squadron minus, you know, the, the warrant officer. <clears throat> Uh, okay. They're all pilots. So like the OIC in charge of the flight line mechanics, that's a pilot, usually a co-pilot, just a first lieutenant. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's a different experience working with pilots than it is working with like the average like lieutenant uh, mm. because they don't – they're in charge of this maintenance shop, but not like not really. It's just kind of they get turned over so often that they don't really get to take ownership of it. And honestly, I don't think mm. that's a bad okay. thing because they don't, they don't really know the maintenance side of things. They're pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't, they're not like the, I don't want to sound disparaging. I like pilots, but the, they just have a different mindset, different goals. Yeah. 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 The, the leadership, like other officers are there to, you know, they're there to lead men. Mm-hmm. Pilots fly. That's fine. Right. They have great careers. They make so much money and they get to fly around. And if you're in garrison, you just get your flight hours and it's it's over. You drive your super nice car to your super big house on the beach. But uh, they're also no, very no bitterness. Back. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not bitter. Yeah. I ought to be bitter. Pilots. Yeah, yeah. But they they have a good gig. They're very laid back. For, mm-hmm. There's reasons for that. Like an uptight pilot's the guy who's jerking the stick around. Right. Um, right. And you know, if the maintenance gets done, they're happy with you. And if it doesn't get done, they're happy with you. Cause they don't have to fly. Um, there's some friction because pilots, they're, like, they're smart guys. They're, these are officers and they can fly an aircraft, mm-hmm. but 
they don't they don't know how to complain well. So when something's broken, it's like pulling teeth to get like the right description of the problem out of them. Some of the things uh, I troubleshot a flight once, and the pilot calls me into the cockpit, and he points at the cyclic stick, the big stick in the middle, mm-hmm. and he says it's sticky, and that was it. That's all he said. I <laughs> like that could be you sheared a fast rod. That could be I need to clean the thing or right. a dumb joke. That could be anything. Right. Right. Yeah. Turns out he sheared a fast rod. So <clears throat> oops. But yeah, no. Some of the things these pilots will say when they have an issue. Right. Or, yeah, when they want to be like drama queens and like a, a little bit of sm- like a puff of smoke comes out of whatever instrument, which so- it sounds bad. That sounds really right. bad. But right. this aircraft are old. That happens. Right. And they they immediately land and they come back and they they tell us like, oh, there was an electrical fire in the cockpit. Was, I had to put out a fire. <laughs> Dude, there's a puff of smoke. How how old were the airframes you were working on? I mean, were were they? Well, you said they were echoes, so they probably weren't original. Early eighties. Okay. Early eighties were the ones I was working on for the most part. Some are some are a little bit older than that. Like that, we had, we had some that were mid and late, like eighty eight. But okay. I think the oldest airframe I ever worked on was like eighty three ish. Wow. Uh, I mean, I pulled off. So I was born in ninety seven. Right. I once right. pulled off a relay panel that had a sticker on it that says expires in 1991, like November 1991. <laughs> Older than me. It, it had it been ex- there since. It expired then. before you were born and you're working on yeah, it. Yeah. Like well before I was born. Yeah. Ancient stuff. Well, that's so crazy. Old. Huh. <clears throat> yeah. You hear a lot about that, which makes sense because some of these airframes, like the B 52 or something, just they don't see that many flight hours or whatever, and there's no replacement. So they yeah. just keep them going. Yeah. But still, the, that's wild. Parts is kind of the big thing. And then the airframes, they wear out. And then they come out and they survey them. And no one's sure. ever going to be the guy who's like, this airframe's unserviceable. So they just keep staying in service. Right, it's, right. I mean, they fly. The uh, the maintenance hours are insane. I, I can't remember off the mm. top of my head what the, the figure was for maintenance hours per flight hour. But it was like double digits. It was insane. Or right. maintenance man hour, rather. So the number right. of guys you needed to work on an aircraft for however long for it to fly for one hour. Right. It's unreal. Right. It really put your put your shift work into perspective when you wanted to complain about how long you were working. And you look at the flight schedule and you're like, oh. Sure. Checks out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh, interesting. So, um, oh, shoot. It just flew out of my mind. I had a question. <clears throat> hmm. Probably something to do with math. I'm not good at math. Something to do with maintenance hours per per or something. Anyways, um, so the uh, what was that? Um, the Iran hostage attempt back back early '80s, wasn't it? Oh, uh, the Iran hostage crisis. That was something yeah. to do with uh, Iran had they had hostages, and it was like I know it was this big thing because it was like day one of Reagan's presidency. They were freed, right? Like, what like, wasn't it? Fifty threes that burned in the desert. Was it two of them? I think that rings a bell. I don't know. It, okay, okay. I just it have like been a... de- if they were, they might have been deltas. In right. Which case, uh, they probably wouldn't have told us about it as Echo guys because uh, there were a couple Delta guy holdouts. Like the sure. older guys were. Like, they were like, oh, the Delta was better. Right, um, right, of course. <laughs> but 
it probably would have been a bigger thing for them versus us. Right. It wouldn't have been in the you'll know or... you'll be fairly familiar with a lot of the like the stuff that your aircraft has seen and done, but yeah, I don't know. Sure. It, it was sure. Because I, I know what you're talking about. I don't know if it was fifty threes. If it was, it might have been deltas. Yeah. Those were the days when the Echo was cutting edge and we were still using deltas for a lot of stuff. Sure, sure, okay. Huh. Yeah, so did you did you crew any of the missions in the Gulf? Uh, a couple, and it was uh, it was an adventure. Yeah, yeah, couple, <clears throat> couple. So in crewing, whether whether on deployment or in a or in um at base or whatever, what what would be your duties if you're crewing on a flight? Are if you you're just, like, an avionics guy, uh. Well, really, if you're flying, your job is, you know, aircrew stuff. So uh, you're loading the aircraft, which means mm-hmm. carrying heavy things onto it or pushing them up the rollers. Uh, you're taking care of the, uh, we call them packs, but just like grunts in the aircraft. Uh, you're mm-hmm. the guy that makes sure that they're strapped in. Um, if you have a 50 cal, that's your 50 cal. Uh-huh. Okay, sure. And then if you're a maintainer there, you... You're not requ- if something's broken, broken. You're absolutely allowed and even encouraged to land and have it fixed back on the ship. Right. Uh, but if you're there and it's something you can do in the air, which is actually fairly common, right? Uh, you can fix it in the air. Okay. It's that's uh, that gets you really good at thinking on your feet to right. do maintenance in the sky like that. And uh, while you're flying, yeah. <laughs> I, I have hearing loss for one reason, it's, and it's that. It's that kind of maintenance is why my ear is ringing. Oh. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. Hmm. Why, why that specifically? Do you have to pull your helmet off to do something? or? Oh, to get in the tight spaces? Yeah, the helmet's got to oh, go off. Gotcha. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah. It's, and then you kind of, like, after however long, you just can't hear anything anyways. But, yeah, I do that too many times. and uh, Right. Uh, eventually, it doesn't even – you just have natural hearing protection. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it's called. <laughs> huh. That's a bummer. Huh. So then, um, man, that question is right there on the tip of my mind. Can't remember it. Um, well, okay, so uh, everybody has... Like when everybody thinks of the Vietnam War, they usually think of like CCR music or something. What was your your playlist? What was our playlist? Yeah. All right. This is gonna sound. This is probably what's gonna set uh, me apart from the the older generation of guys who okay. the Afghan guys because they have their own. They're gonna have their own. This is gonna sound like the most Generation Z thing ever. Uh, all we had was like a couple bootleg albums. We had one of the newer at the time post malone albums mm. yeah and uh chance the rapper like old chance the rapper oh wow wow that is it that is oh yeah <laughs> that was the soundtrack like doesn't doesn't matter what you were doing that was it and i'd look i didn't like either of those guys right uh but right as a, a survival mechanism man i learned to love chance the rapper right huh. interesting chance. Hmm. So, so now, I mean, I guess it wasn't that long ago, a couple of years or whatever, but 
that that still when you hear those tunes it still did bring back memories. yes yeah oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like it's it's hypersensory mm. yeah the songs i listen to it, it's like i can smell the the aircraft again it smells like oh. i can smell the hide fluid oh man right is that Completely. just just the songs that you had or for example if you hear a um another post malone song oh it's just the songs that we have just the, just okay have. Yeah, yeah oh yeah anything i have a chance the rapper <laughs> bittersweet yeah, the association is there that's interesting yeah that makes sense i i've heard some people um try to do that through through life like every couple of years they try to um change the either the type of music or the artists they listen to so then that way through the years go back. right they'll hear a particular song and it'll just bring back memories it works. So, yeah, it works. it's kind of interesting. Yeah, because you know, if you hear any Creedence Clearwater Revival song, almost that <laughs> yes. comes on, you're like, "Oh, Vietnam!" Like this is, it's, oh, yeah. they're in all the movies, pretty much. So, I mean, I don't know if that was. I should ask that. <clears throat> I don't know if that was the case um, at the time, like in reality, but it sure seems that way now. If but, that's kind of become like the Helicopter Squadron anthem. Hmm. Sure. Sure. That's uh, true. Yeah. It's a uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. Yeah. yeah. That'd be a good question to ask. You get a, a Vietnam guy. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So. Um. Sometimes I write my questions down, and uh, sometimes I don't. That's really bugging me. Anyways, all right, uh, moving on. What um, did you, when you were in the Gulf and you were doing that whole back and forth, the mu turn, where you went back and forth and all that, um, and no port ability, did you did the shared hardship kind of like tighten up the camaraderie among yes. everybody, or was it yes. just like hate spread through the whole ship? No, so that – it sounds like a kind of sounds like a trope like when things get really bad it's kind of when the guys you're working with uh you get a lot closer to them that's right it's actually very real though uh and when things got really really miserable in like every sense of the word the ops were miserable uh right. the environment was miserable what we were doing was miserable you get every level everything just sucked like nothing nothing didn't suck um that's kind of when it's not even because you like there, there'll be guys that you don't even like beforehand mm -hmm. you have to like them or at least like you don't even have to like like them like them but you're you're going to be very very close with them there's, mm. there's no right. alternative right you, you cannot dislike these people especially not because they're here you know like you know you right. have your buddies back home your family back home but they're not there they don't know right. like you can occasionally contact them and tell them how bad it is but they don't really get it the guy that you, you don't like, he gets it at least. He's there. Right. He's you're both complaining about the same thing. So at a fundamental level, uh, you don't really dislike anyone, right? Well, except for the sailors, but that's <laughs> many of the guys. Many of the guys you deployed with, the guys you showed up with, right? Yeah, and you can't just like step out and go to the bar down the street to get away no, from it no. all. You're, you're yeah, stuck. You, yeah, you finish up at work. You're sharing a shower with them. Same guys you just right. work with. Right. Huh. 
What uh? So now you're out. What? What was kind of the most valuable thing that your time in the military taught you? Now that you're a civilian. Um, hmm, how how am I trying to phrase this? I guess what was kind of the your your main experience, your most valuable experience, or or lesson learned or gained. How to work with others in extraordinarily stressful circumstances, like how to not, mm. how to not lose your composure, how to not just come unglued, how to tolerate other people when they're, I, and I mean this, you know, subjectively being stupid or incredibly right. stupid. Sure. Um, you know, how to disagree with someone in an extraordinarily tense situation, but resolve it instantly. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like a weird takeaway. I know like, and like how to communicate with other people. That's hardly a relevant takeaway, but you, right. you get pretty good at uh, pretty good at uh, meshing with people that are not in a state to be right. communicated with at all. Right. And solve problems like without, without anyone having to panic or come to blows. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. amazed at what I can tolerate these days. <laughs> or, or what you have to tolerate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> huh. The uh, one thing I like to ask everybody is um, what, if a kid was to ask you, um, hey, I'm going in the military, what's your advice? What would you say? That's tough. There's a lot of pressure to to tell guys no, don't do it, like mm-hmm. bar none. I mm-hmm. can't take that view because sometimes I don't want to say there's no alternatives, but sometimes the alternatives aren't optimal or aren't even available. And it's mm. for some guys, it's probably a wise choice to make. Now there's some guys that it's absolutely not a wise choice to make. Um, sure. And there's, you know, any, there's things that you should tell anyone who's going to enlist. Um, but if someone asked me if they told me that they wanted to enlist and asked me for advice, something, uh, I would tell them to have a plan because eventually that enlistment's going to end and they're going to have to have sure. something to show for it. Uh, you don't want to be the guy who, Reenlists just because he doesn't have anything else. Um, right. And if, if you're going to reenlist, uh, that's fine. But don't be the guy who's doing it because he doesn't have any other options. So understand that you're committing to four or five years, but it's going to be over at some point, and you have to be ready to. You have to be ready now before you've even started it to either uh, move on or stay in. But you can't be. Don't be caught with your pants down then. Hmm. Do you think, because I've heard a lot of guys say that in the military, um, it's, it's easy. There's, you don't have to think a lot. A lot of your life is laid out for you. There's orders. There's, you know, where to sleep, you know, where you're eating. Um, I, I guess that makes sense what you're saying, especially in that environment where so much is laid out for you and you don't really have to plan ahead. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Like live in the barracks, you the chow hall, you know, you don't got to 
worry about uh, bills. Your your life is as simple as you want to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, really, if you wanted to, you could just collect a paycheck. You know, eat on base, live in the barracks. I mean, I did that. I didn't. Even, I didn't own a car my entire enlistment. Mm, right. I didn't want to. Didn't want to pay for it. Just didn't need it. Right. Uh, so you could, life is as simple as you can make it. And honestly, uh, it can be a good thing. It it can set you back a little. Like there's those guys who mm. who don't know how to like pay bills when they get out or mm-hmm. nothing. As much as they try to teach you that, but, um, that there, there there is some appeal to the simplicity of it. Yeah. And just like that, bam, audio issues. But at least you can still hear Dexter, because let's be real, you're not here to listen to me. You were saying um, you can see the um, advantage to, um, not the austerity of it, I forget the word you use, but kind of the... Simplicity. The, the simplicity, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, it becomes very, very simple just to exist. You know, you, you're getting a paycheck, you go to work, you know right. what you're doing at work, you know who you're working with. Um, right. Eat for well, free in its way. Uh, live in the barracks, not paying for it. Um, and if you don't, if you don't uh, plan ahead, if you just kind of live in the moment, then four years later or five years later, it's gonna be like, oh, uh, what do I do? I guess I realize. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's very <laughs> common for a guy to. He ends up. He's, you know, four years ago he was eighteen and didn't know what he was getting into. Now he's right. twenty-two. He's married. Maybe he's got a kid. He doesn't got any money in the bank, doesn't have a plan. Yep. I, I'll re-enlist. I mean, and you, you, I can't blame him. Like, if you re-enlist, you know what you're getting. It's, mm-hmm. And it's good, which is, and it's good enough. Um, it it can be rough. There there are downsides to it, especially if you deploy and you're married. But um, mm. uh, it's good to give yourself the option. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Um, any with any thoughts on a civilian's perception of the military, um, good or bad? Like, what what do you what do you see that's laudable, and what do you what do you like? Hmm, well, that's not actually correct. It's almost hard to address because the the perception is so. Mm. And I'm not trying to knock. I'm trying to knock people for. It's, well, it's like this weird. And there's there's kind of two made up perspectives. Like one of them is really this idealized, um, like positive caricature, if you know what I mean. And the mm. other, sure, the other is like this uh, this this horrid. Uh, they have this this twisted picture painted of what you do and, and the kind of person you are. Um, and there's some middle ground, but there's kind of these two two meta narratives. Uh-huh. Uh, and both of them, both of them, are based on reality in some way, but it's kind of hard to describe. And like people who have never, uh, never served, kind of, it's hard to explain to them what it's actually like. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. really, it's not that much different from normal life in a lot of ways. Deployment absolutely is. Detachments uh-huh. and everything are, but like if you're just on base, it's very similar to what everyone else does so um like to to the the gushers the you know the, the like the older people in my family every mm-hmm. like whenever i when i came home right uh, just like oh you're a hero this is, the, 
oh, it's embarrassing. I can't. Right. Even. Right. It's so hard. Like people, uh, it, like, oh, thank you so much for your service. There's no, I, I have to this day not come up with a good answer for that. I cannot, I cannot hmm. respond to that in a way that doesn't just make me cringe. I can't do it. <laughs> like, right. You just kind of, right. you just kind of just blush and, uh, uh, and I, it's, not, it's not that I, I dislike when people say it. It's not like it bothers me. You know, I, I appreciate the sentiment. It's just like, right. it's like you, someone you, praising you for something that you don't give yourself like that kind of credit for. Right. Right. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's awkward. Like I, it, it's kind of, I appreciate the, the sentiment, but, and I think people, other people, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the only one who has this problem. I can't be. I, mm. yeah. Oh, right. Right. Like how to respond to it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I've and then uh, on the other side, you got, and this is mainly like a like a younger person thing. I've never had this problem with someone, you know, older than thirty, maybe. Uh-huh. Is uh, uh, people have these weird assumptions of what it is you went and did, uh, or like why you mm. went and did it, and sure, it's like people think you like voluntarily paddled a canoe over. <laughs> to the sands of Araby to, I don't right. even know, like commit whatever unspeakable atrocities gets you off. But right. Right. Yeah, there's, yeah. No, that's, I that's just... more of a younger thing. And it's hmm. again, two decades of war fatigue will produce that kind of sentiment. So it's not like it came out of nowhere. These people aren't uniquely flawed in their perceptions. But, sure. Sure. I see what um, you're saying. It's yeah. You just got to, hmm. they, they, they don't, their framing is off. They can't really understand mm-hmm. what it is that they're even describing. They just have their perception of it from the outside, very far outside. Mm. Right, right. Huh. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of that. Guys are just like, I don't know what to say. Like, and, and it makes sense from a civilian standpoint. It's kind of like a neat little package of respecting someone and thanking them for something that that you that you think they've done but on the other right. hand i can understand definitely from for a, someone that was in the military you're like you don't even you don't even know what i did or or you don't even yeah. maybe don't even know my name you just see i'm wearing yeah. a uniform what what do you yeah it's it's tough and then how to respond like you say without cringing and then without being rude Great, like graciously. How do you respond graciously? Because right. it feels so wrong. You can't just be like, "You're welcome," because right. like that's the whole reason it's awkward is they're thanking you, and you. I just went to work for five right. years. Uh, right. You know, did did my I was getting paid. I didn't volunteer, but um, hmm. but you know, it's hard. I can't I can't answer in a way that isn't just awkward. I usually just just look down like, oh yeah, you right. too. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. Huh. Hmm. Um, yeah, any any final thoughts or any any uh you you got your your soapbox, jump on it. That's kind of question... that is kind of what I'm trying to do is give I I don't know if I've said this on the on live previously. I'm trying to give people the listener the opportunity to hear uh just a random vet not some famous person not an actor in a mm-hmm. movie but just a vet 
and hear what they have to say and also give the, the vet the opportunity to speak to an audience that is not, you know, a TV, um, you know, just just a dude. Right, right. So which is so easy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, any. Uh... Um, I guess I'll. So the question that uh, I get asked the most and that uh, I'm actually surprised that you didn't ask me, which, well, and that's not, I'm not that good. You had, you had some really good questions. I forget the mm-hmm. one that you, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I get asked the most and it's usually uh, guys who, guys that I know who are still in and that um, know me from before I got out. Uh, they ask like, would you do it again? And mm. uh, sometimes they're referring to like enlisting in general. Sometimes they're referring to the deployment because I deployed right before I got out. I pretty much came back from the Gulf and immediately was a civilian again. Um, oh sure. So you could have you yeah, could have not gone. That's right. You could have uh, worked. Yeah, so you didn't I, go if you wanted to. I could have not gone. <laughs> I opted to. Uh, but I get asked like, "Would you do it again?" And uh, on, whether they're referring to uh, my enlistment as a whole or just the deployment, my answer is kind of the same, which is, if I could do it again with the exact same guys, I would do it again. Oh come on. Is that me? Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh, okay, we're good. All right. Oh, um, all right, gotcha. Where I was saying something. Where was I when I, I, uh, I heard you for? Passed I heard away? you for a second. I can. You're coming in good for me. Am I coming in good for you? Uh, your audio is. Yeah, your your video's frozen, but that's okay. Uh-oh. Oh, it's, that's it's your good side. Uh, that, all right. Uh, well, <laughs> oh, now you're up. Now you're moving. I, I trust you. Oh, we're good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, I, I was probably I was saying something. What was I? Um, I, had, I had just asked. Um, were was it a sit- situation where if you hadn't wanted to deploy because you were so close to getting out, you could, um, you didn't have to, or was it semi optional? Uh, yes, it was semi optional. Um, okay, and actually, there was the guy that I um, had really come up with. He joined a little bit before me. He had to extend to deploy. Which is how close right. I was. I just missed having to do that. Right. Um, it was like such a tiny time span between getting back and EASing. But, uh, mm-hmm. Guys asked me, like, would you do it again? Like, I, I tell them, if I could do it with the, the exact same guys, if mm-hmm. I could do it with all the exact same guys, sure. I would do it again. Sure. If you can't give me all those same guys, I won't do it. But, you, like, if I could do hmm. it with my friends again, I would. Right. Right. No, that makes sense just the camaraderie, like you're saying under the pressure and everything. Oh yeah. The, did you go, do you, uh, hmm, did you go in as, as close knit friends as you did, as you came out of it? Or do you think I got lucky in that Mm -hmm. I deployed with all my friends and that was, Mm -hmm. it was a total accident. It was just the guys they picked, uh, right. Kind of the guys that I, we already like to all work with each other. Um, but we definitely did become a, a lot closer. I, I can't. I can't put it in the words. It kind of like family might be a strange word for it. That it like transcends just being buddies at work. Mm-hmm. Um, like we. So we still all talk every day. I talk to all the guys I deployed with. Like we're still mm. all in communication, and several sure. of them have got out. Some of them reenlisted. But we still all we we all still talk to each other every single day. Um, 
but yeah, it definitely does. It does strengthen that uh, that bond, however mm. strong there it was before. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. What when you uh, like you said, your your father, your grandfather were were Marines. Do when you got out, uh, did you find? What am I trying to say? The like the relationship did they under did they have a better understanding? You think of what it was like in the military as opposed to uh, maybe friends or other family who who hadn't been in, even I even they though did. they were in years ago. Uh, innately, I think they did. Like there mm-hmm. there are differences. Um, sure. My father was in like the the mid to late eighties, and things have obviously changed quite a bit since then. But only so much. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he well, yeah, he I could definitely relate to him way better than uh, well other family members who hadn't didn't know what I meant um, when I described the ship. Right. Sure. If I'm talking, sure. if I'm talking to my old man, he knows what I mean. Uh, when I tell him about the showers and how awful they are, other right. people I have to go into detail. Right. Why were the showers awful? Oh, well, you see, we're sharing them. <laughs> oh, oh, enough said. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he, yeah, he, yeah, that's true. Maybe even the same showers. <laughs> A- actually, yes. The same aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually kind of awesome. The, to have that. Um, if, if your dad had done the same job as you, it would it's potentially possible that a father and son could have worked on the same air, airframe. I, I always wondered the airframe is definitely checked out age wise, uh, mm-hmm. location wise as well. Some of them. Yeah. Um, but unless he, he didn't carve his name in any of the bulkheads. Yeah. So yeah, no, 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 way, no, way no. Tell. <laughs> Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What I don't always ask this, but what do you think if uh, obviously I don't often ask it because I haven't really figured out how to phrase it. What for a civilian who has a friend that just got out of the military, what would you say, at least in your experience, is the best um, the best way to just to respond to a vet who just got out. Probably, it certainly depends on the person. Um, mm-hmm. Like some guys will do four years uh, working whatever job. Like I don't know. I'm not knocking supply guys as much as I want to. Like okay, say a guy works supply for four years, he can get out and he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, is there other growing pains? Absolutely. Uh, mm. Especially it sucks if you came in when you were young, like a young guy, like 18, made a lot of friends. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like your whole environment changes back to when you were 18 again. Right. Right. Um, that can be rough. Uh, it, which rougher than you'd think. I, it's actually incredible how uh, drastic that can be. Um, hmm. Everything I can think of for a person like that sounds so banal. Mm-hmm. Right. I think just understanding the like understanding the context, just understanding the context that they've 
left the environment that they were in versus they left and not even even if they weren't in like a particularly bad environment uh they 100% have very close friends that they've now been pulled away from and probably never going to see again in a lot of cases. So uh, I think a lot of guys do have kind of the, uh, well, there's like the, the bliss phase when you get out because you're so happy to be out because it was so bad. Uh, Beard. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. No way. I'm not going to escape for the rest of my life. Yeah. that kind of wears off, but eventually you kind of start missing your friends. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And some guys can take that harder than others. Um, but like I said, it depends on the person. Um, uh, like, pers- like for me, I came straight from the Gulf, like basically to my backyard. Like there really right. no, no gap. So that was an adjustment. Um, I can't even fathom like what I would tell someone uh, – Asking about like, what do I do with Dexter? Uh, I don't know, cut him off after three beers, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's yeah. No, it's the adjustment thing. Like you hear guys talk about it, and you're like, yeah, like how hard could it be? There's nothing. I, I really want. I want to go home. I I want right. to get out and get out of this shit. But, uh, right. And you, you get out, and you're really you're super happy, and then uh, like. Then you kind you of miss your it. friends. Then, yeah. then the growing pains set in. Like, yeah. It's, hmm. uh, yeah. It can be quite difficult, actually. Huh. Yeah, I've, I've heard some guys talk about um, the benefit of um, a couple in particular chose to, like, just get a house together. A whole bunch of guys that knew each other. I have heard of that. Got a house. And they, they, for them, that kind of gave them that still that friendship and semi military camaraderie to a certain extent. Yeah. You're, um, your friend, you're still living with your friends like you always have, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's not as much of a, a brutal removal of your, right. your environment. Right. Yeah. You honestly. can just go out in the back and smoke and shoot the breeze or whatever. Yeah. And, and so you still kind of have that to connect you as you transition over. But, Hmm. Yeah, what was what was that like for you? What was your uh, uh, my adjustment? Yeah, uh, my yeah my adjustment was uh, not. I don't say it was a disaster. That it wasn't a disaster, but it also was not. Uh, it wasn't painless. Mm, um, sure. I I get back to the states. I've been gone for close to nine months, eight months, almost nine months. Um. I come off the helicopter. I touch the ground in the United States for the first time in however long. Mm. And someone yells from across the flight line, hey, put a mask on. <laughs> and You're all like, of us what? all of us are like, what? <laughs> what? Like, why? <laughs> we had no idea. Um, right, right. Like, just, yeah, it turns out, oh, there's this virus going around. Like, so that was, that, that was a shock to the system. And then... Um, I got out very, very soon after that. Um, mm. I didn't even, I didn't even unpack all my stuff because when you deploy, you pack all your stuff up and throw it in a storage unit somewhere. I didn't even unpack right. that. I didn't need to. Right. It was there. Um, I was gone back home like immediately. And then from there I went to school immediately, like in a, mm. in a different state, uh, like away from like home and everything. So I just went like 
extremely right. rapid environment changes. And so I went pretty much from uh, combat theater to freshman at college campus full of strangers in right. like no time flat, which was uh, really rough because you kind of forget how much you age. Oh, like, right. I did, like, like right. a huge gap between 18 and 23, massive. Yeah. Uh, so like you're on this college campus and you're surrounded by like, I'm not knocking them. They, they can't help when they were born. They're, they're kids. Um, right. Yeah. You feel like an old man and you right. <laughs> like, you can't like, you can't like talk. You, you can try to relate to them, but there's such like the age gap. And like, I had just got out of the Gulf. Right. And these kids just got out of like high school. Right. I, it's, there's nothing like what, what could I say to them? What could they say to me? It was hard. Well, and you've yeah. just, you've just been, you know, eight months ago, you were responsible for a multi-million dollar piece of equipment. Yes. And, that's, and that's, however that's many lives, they tell us, yeah. however many yeah, lives exactly. are on it. And then these kids, you know, they might not have brushed their teeth that morning or something. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Huh. And that's, and not even like, not even to be parochial, like a, it's not that these they're just normal kids. They didn't, right. no, they didn't, they wrong, didn't have the experiences. Yeah. The life experience. Uh, it's not, yeah, there's really like nothing that I could relate huh. to them that they could relate to me. It's just kind of the, the translation thing. Mm. And then that campus that I had gone to, cause I only went to the school for one semester. Um, mm. uh, I was probably one of the very oldest guys on campus. It was just all young, young kids. Um, and there were like there were no veterans, there were like none, mm, right? None at all. So, so yeah, it was really, really strange. Like it didn't, uh, it didn't like the VA rep wasn't like even a real VA rep. So I had to do like all my GI Bill paperwork myself. Uh, that was rough. Right, right. Um, it was really foreign, honestly. So, huh? Yeah, yeah. So you're not only the old guy, you're also the only vet. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. It was, yeah, just totally like I left one foreign country and entered another. Like I didn't, I didn't know how to like talk to these people. Right. I mean, I right. did, I did, but I, I also didn't. Like I, I, I was chastised for the way I spoke to a younger student at one point, and it's not like mm-hmm. I threatened him or nothing, but, uh, yeah, you, you gotta like not. This limits. He's right. not. He's not my man. That's right. not how this works anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that happened. Um, You're like this guy doesn't even know who Chance the Rapper is. <laughs> yeah, you, he's never even listened to Old Chance. Right, right. This this one Post Malone album. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's. I think. That I think that's. Time. Um. I think people don't realize that enough is the, even if someone stateside, their whole deployment there for four or five years or not whole deployment, their whole um, career, whatever um, contract there for those four or five years, they're in a completely different culture and just a completely different mindset. And then, and they have totally different experiences and they totally change not totally, but they, they, they are changed as a person. And then they come back yeah. to their friends and their, their old circles 
and a lot of their friends are doing the exact same thing. Like it's just yeah. like oh, yeah. time time has not moved on for them very much. And then they expect the the vet to just jump right back in. And it's like, this guy's he's done different things. He's seen different things. He's been different places. Just a totally different person, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. And that like that sounds like such a trope because it's everyone everyone says that. Like it's right. It's conventional wisdom. So but it, I mean it's that's the, that's it is the case. Um hmm. and yeah, and I early in my enlistment I had um I think it was a, a gunny at this at A school actually told all of us and it's something that actually stuck with me. Amazingly, I listened to this guy. Uh he said uh, you're gonna change as a person in the ne- like more as a person in the next four or five years of your life than you will for the rest of your life. Like like mm. seventeen to like mid twenties, early twenties, you're gonna change more as a person than you ever will at any point. That's just uh, hmm. how men are, I suppose. And it didn't kind of went through me at the time. It stuck with right. me, but not I couldn't prove it. Uh but I I think there is quite a bit of truth to that. Hmm. You definitely do go through some shifts. Right. Just naturally. And then also being in that environment kind of accelerates it. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure it does. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, Dexter. I appreciate it. That was... uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed that. For sure. Every every episode's different, and and it's... uh, Everyone's fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll start going through the ones I have bookmarked. <laughs> the titles definitely look interesting. I, I'm curious oh, to hear yeah. from someone who's not a Marine. It's all I hear. It's all I hear from. <laughs> yeah. Good, good luck finding somebody. Let's see. <laughs> uh, I should do the math. Probably a third. I would bet a third so far are uh, Marines. Impressive ratio. Thank you for listening to this episode of How I Embraced the South. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And as my Girl Scout den mother used to say, stay frosty. Flew ops mainly into Kuwait, uh, one time into proper Iran, and uh, some ops from Saudi when that was possible.